The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter Mars colonists. I'm science fiction author Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Hello. And we are two generations geek. This is episode 8, Destination Geek, and we'll be talking with our very special guest, astronaut Thomas D. Jones, who traveled into space four times aboard the space shuttle, twice on Endeavor, and once each on Columbia and Atlantis. Altogether, he spent almost 1,300 hours in space, including three spacewalks. You can learn all about his years at NASA in his book, Skywalking, an astronaut's memoir. Now let's bring him on. Good morning, Tom, and welcome to Generations Geek. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine and looking forward to talking about space history and Star Trek. Cool. Well, since you mentioned Star Trek, let's just dive right into that. I was wondering, was there one episode in particular that really grabbed you when you were a kid watching Star Trek? Oh, I think the, my favorite was the, the Gorn episode where he's fighting the lizard monster on some alien planet, you know, a man yes. on a, a lizard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's the fate of the spaceship and everything depends on whether um, Kirk can pull off some miracle of innovation. And then he discovers how to make gunpowder and <laughs> blows the lizard guy away. Okay, that so, is a fun episode. I yeah, love they that have episode. respect for each other as they're two captains, you know. Yeah. So, uh, very, very interesting episode. And I, I'm sure there's some echoes of other sp- science fiction behind all of that, those plots. Just like, you know, you saw other episodes where they were plainly just a ripoff of some World War II submarine movie. Oh, yeah. That they used, uh, you know, uh, the plot twist for. So, but it was still fun. I assume that that was part of what really inspired you to the career you moved into. Well, it was very timely in that Star Trek came out, what, in like 66 or 67, yeah. and uh, the, uh, I was about 11 years old, 12 years old at the time, and so I was already a space geek. I was already clipping newspaper articles about space, putting them in scrapbooks, and watching all of the Gemini launches mm-hmm. in the 65 and 66 time frame, and then I was really keen on Ap- Apollo, and this, this uh, series came out just as the moon program was be- starting to get into full steam. Um, so the first Apollo missions began in 1968. They had the Apollo fire in 1967. In fact, I think I wrote it in my uh, story for you that um, uh, uh, at a scout meeting and ran home from the scout meeting to learn that the astronauts had died in the Apollo 1 fire in 1967. So Star Trek was uh, right in the middle of all of that news going on. So here was a vision of the future in space that sort of um, you know, got me over the hump of the, losing the astronauts and Mm-hmm. You know, if, if Star Trek could be so positive in its portrayal of how far it would come, then then certainly the next few years were going to be positive as well. Yeah. So as you grew up and and pursued your love of space, when did you really decide I want to be an astronaut, and how did you start working toward that goal? By the time I was uh, twelve or so, I was at least aware that there was this job called astronaut that real people were doing it. I started to know, to know the names of the astronauts and le- learn about their background. And so, um, you know, by my calculation and looking at shows like Star Trek, then in ten or fifteen or twenty years, we would be really out there. You know, maybe doing landings on Mars by the nineteen eighties. Yeah. I certainly wanted to be a part of that. So, I began to think about okay, 
how do I get into a college that, program that would prepare me for this? And certainly back, back then in the late 60s, you had to become a test pilot if you wanted to be a, an astronaut candidate. So I always thought that flying would be great. So I decided I would go down an Air Force career track. So I began to think about applying, you know, this was in the early 70s now, mm -hmm. applying to the Air Force Academy and getting an appointment there so I would be able to be a pilot afterwards. And only later did NASA come out and say, with the space shuttle, that we could have scientists or engineers. There yeah. were a few scientists in the Apollo program, but only one of them flew to the moon. And, and uh, you know, so that was a gradual transition that came later. But I just began to think about, in the late 60s, that this career field offered a lot of uh, fascination for me, and I began to explore the, the steps that you would take. And you know, watching the Apollo mission step by step, watching science fiction series, um, watching 2001, A Space Odyssey, that was a very formative event oh, yeah. for me too, 1968. Um, here were people that were really, you know, in the movie, they were going to Jupiter. Um, and so that was about the time frame, 2001, where I, you know, that was impossibly far away, 2001. <laughs> but I thought that <laughs> between then and between now and 2001, there'd certainly be a job for me in my 30s or late 20s. There must have been one point when you realized that you were you were going to get to space when you, you when you got some call from NASA or whatever, where you were accepted into the program mm -hmm. and you knew this would be a reality. You would actually make it into space. Uh, what was that like? Oh, the moment that you're called to be assigned to a crew is a really big moment for an astronaut in their career because, you know, you've gone through astronaut candidate training for, uh, for us, it was a year, and then you're qualified to be assigned to a crew, but then there's a lot of suspense in the ensuing months uh, because in my group of astronaut trainees, there were 23 of us, and obviously you can't send all 23 people at once to get their first space flight. So there's going to be first people, and there's going to be the last people in line. And you would hope that you'd be somewhere in the early part of that process. And we were all eager beavers. All of us wanted to fly in space as soon as possible. And we thought we were qualified. And so then you start to look at the list of missions that are out there on the calendar for the next couple of years. And then you start to think, well, you know, this would be something that I'd like to do or that one or this one. And you just hope you get the call. And you can actually go and talk to the chief astronaut and say, here are some missions out in front of us that I think I might be very interested in. And, they, and he takes that into account. Um, but you don't know when you're going to get the phone call. So it was, for me, gosh, almost um, two years after we arrived, that uh, maybe a year and a half that I finally got assigned to a mission. So there had already been some of my classmates picked. Mm -hmm. I was disappointed that I wasn't in the first selection group of two or three. But I think I was in the second batch. And uh, I was assigned early to a mission that was going to be a couple of years in the future. And then with delays, it, it wound up being, you know, more like two and a half years. So at least the I had The longest two and a half years of your life, I would imagine. Well, but you're also relieved that you're on the board. You're on yeah. the list, you're on the schedule. So the day that you get a phone call that says, go over and see the uh, chief of flight crew operations, you know, you either are in big trouble if you have to go see the boss or there's some good news. And so you go over there by yourself. And I walked into the office and there was my crewmates who had already been assigned to the mission, Linda Godwin. And Linda has, was the payload commander in charge of all the science. And so Don Putty, the chief of flight crew operations, who had been an Apollo flight controller um, and had been in the space program for a long time, he said, well, uh, the reason you're here is because Linda and I think that you're a good candidate for this mission. Would you like to go uh, with Linda on this crew for Space Radar Lab 1? And, of course, it takes a half second to say yes. <laughs> and... Uh, 
and then you get a few facts about the mission from him and his expectations, and then he says, okay, get on with it. Uh, congratulations. And you sort of float out the door and float down the steps. And, and it's you practically like, don't need like a rocket own. at that point. Yeah, exactly. You're already in zero gravity right there. So that was a great day. And then you call your family and tell them about it too. So that was a great moment. Yeah, I can't imagine. I, I mean, obviously, a, as a huge space geek myself, the idea of being in space, going to space, just it, it just seems amazing. Actually, I think we should bring in, we got some questions from uh, our friends on Facebook. Why don't you uh, throw in that first... Uh... My favorite one? Yeah, They're all favorite. great, but this is my favorite. This is from Jeremy Pinkham. If, you had, if you'd had a holodeck on the shuttle, would you have used it, or would you have been too excited about being in space and too busy with astronaut duties to have wanted to? If you would have used it, what for? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I'd never heard, thought about that question before. <laughs> I, my short answer is that my experience on the space shuttle was always a couple of hundred miles from Earth. And so uh, the, the Earth fills half the sky, no matter which way the shuttle's pointing. It could be over your head looking out the top windows of the flight deck, or it could be out the side windows or underneath you, although that wasn't typical. And so you always, almost always had a view of the Earth. And it's so fascinating and so beautiful that you wouldn't need a holodeck because <laughs> the Earth is endlessly fascinating and lovely. You want to cram into those spare moments on the flight as many possible views of Earth as you can get. Yeah. And you'd have a, you take a camera, you want to take pictures of everything that you recognize out the window. Uh, if you see some interesting phenomenon, you want to capture that and bring it back to the scientists on the ground. You want to share these things with your family. So that's where you spend your spare time. Yeah. Um, and so there was no boredom that would drive you to using a hollow deck. Now, if you're on a deep space mission, uh, for example, in about 25 or 30 years, people going to Mars, uh, you might be out in deep space for nine months and not have anything to look at out the window except a star field that doesn't move. And so you know, then a holodeck might be lovely then. And, and so you might use virtual reality. In our century, we might use virtual reality to give you some kind of experiences that you're back on Earth or you're on some kind of an alien landscape where you can actually train or think about what your job is or just enjoy yourself. So that might yeah. be a utility, but we're never going to have the room on 21st century spacecraft for a large room like a holodeck. <laughs> You're just going to have to go with watching movies or putting goggles on or something like that. <laughs> Since you mentioned uh, Mars missions, let's talk a little bit about the, the current state of the NASA space program and everything that's going on with the private programs I sometimes find it f frustrating that we're uh, where we are now instead of further out. What, what do you think? Well, I'm certainly frustrated that it's taken so long to find a successor to the space shuttle in terms of getting our transportation back to the space station. You know, to have a country that pretends to be the leader in space and claims to be the leader in space, and we are in so many ways, but then has no rocket capability to get astronauts into orbit yeah. for five or maybe six years, that's, uh, that's inexcusable. So that's a policy failure. In other words, the Washington decision makers have let us down. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, inexcusable, and it was, it was a train wreck that we, should have seen, that we did see coming for three or four or five years ahead of time, and yet nothing was done to fund a rapid successor to the shuttle. So let's talk about where we are today. We have um, commercial companies already sending cargo under contract to the space station. Uh, those same commercial companies, along with some other competitors that are in the race, will be vying for NASA astronaut transport business. And so in, in the end, in 2016, NASA will be leasing a spacecraft of, from one of these competitors and using it to get to the space station. And that'll be a good thing 
I just wish it had happened faster. Uh, this solution is a good solution to the low Earth orbit transportation system, uh, but it, it needed to happen faster. And it was just simply a question of budget priorities yeah. and politicians not paying attention. And that's too bad. And if we'll be lucky if we get by with no major disasters, because we could lose the entire space station now since we don't have a capability to, to repair it or get astronauts yeah. up there quickly. That said, the larger long-term challenge is not getting people to the space station, but it's how do you get them out into deep space doing exciting things, exploring on the frontiers once again, where we haven't been for 40 years uh, at lunar distance. So I think that NASA should be selling or telling a better story to the Congress and to the president to get approval for deep space human exploration, to put not only astronauts near the moon, but perhaps if uh, the resources are down on the lunar surface, we should have astronauts on the moon for extracting water and uh, making the cost of space exploration cheaper. We can also capture a nearby asteroid, bring that back to an orbit around the moon, have the astronauts dissecting and then exploiting that asteroid for resources, hundreds of tons of asteroid material. And then finally, uh, we can be talking about missions to Mars based on the experience that we get in Earth-Moon space. And if we think that we're going to fly an astronaut to the moon in orbit around the moon every five years and think that that's going to be exciting, uh, we're fooling ourselves. NASA yeah. is at the very minimum level of life support. And if they go any slower, the Congress and the president in future years are just going to cancel the whole thing because nobody's going to be interested in it. It's going to have to be more dynamic, more ambitious in the near term for it to survive. I think that the enthusiasm is there if, if they would just tap into it. But when you see the interest that people have in uh, the Mars rover and the Virgin Galactic stuff is in the news a lot, I think that people really are fascinated by it and excited by it, but it's just been backburnered and we've lost all momentum. We need to have uh, short-term accomplishments in the human program so that we're not so slow-paced. We need to expand the commercial uh, enterprise so that there are lots of tourists going up so that they can come back and personalize the experience. But there also should be astronauts hired by NASA out there on the frontier doing stuff that the commercial companies can't even approach. And combination of doing some real pioneering, but also making the experience more broadly based, I think is the winning combination. Uh, yeah. And that's quickly followed then by industrial activity in Earth-Moon space, which I think is the key to making this an economic sphere that benefits all of us that every, so that everyone will say, of course this makes sense. Let's, yeah. We're making money out there. Let's continue yeah. that. And that's the key to broadening it and to re-energizing it. So rather than thinking about Mars, which may or may not be done uh, by government in the next 20 or 30 years. We ought to be thinking about industrializing space and making it so obvious that space is a place to do exciting things that, you know, um, it's just not even an issue anymore. Just as we don't argue about whether we should uh, have railroads or whether we should have oil and gas uh, production. You know, those are economically uh, beneficial activities that everybody agrees right. upon. Well, this would be a good time for you to talk a little bit about uh, planetary resources and your work with, with them. Well, sure. Uh, you know, the, the great news this year, again, expanding on commercial opportunities in space and sort of taking our, our first tentative steps out there is the fact that two companies have declared they want to mine asteroids for um, valuable resources, both to use them to sell to space agencies, to make money by selling water, for example, and rocket fuel to space agencies in space. And maybe there are some beneficial m minerals and metals in particular on asteroids that could actually be economically um, uh, profitable to return to Earth, and platinum 
and its relatives on the periodic table are the, the things that look like they may be scarce enough on Earth to be valuable enough to return from an asteroid. So that's a, a, an example of the kind of business activity that has to go forward to um, broaden our activity level and interest and excitement in space. To make a profit, to be um, uh, a planner of a robotic prospecting mission to an asteroid, and then eventually, again, NASA's thinking about this idea of bringing a, a, a several hundred ton asteroid back to lunar distance and then having astronauts involved in dissecting it as well as robots. That's a, that that yeah. would be a game changer uh, for the government to sort of jumpstart the entire uh, mineral extraction and water extraction industries by making that resource available. That would be a very positive move for NASA as well. And so aside from the mineral extraction and prospecting businesses, you might think of other industries starting up to create a pharmaceutical factory in space or a research mm -hmm. laboratory separate from the space station, private research outposts or facilities. And that would move then to production eventually of things that can be made in space. And I'm thinking now in terms of energy collection, uh, a utility company that has the kind of capital to build nuclear plants on the ground or big gas-fired uh, electricity generation plants, they might be able to invest in, in a pilot demonstration with NASA in collecting solar energy and somehow beaming that with microwave beams back to the ground and making that a part of our energy solution. So I, I think that's how we have to uh, broaden the base of activity in space, make it space a profitable arena, and then we'll, we'll see Mars fall into our laps as a result of that kind of experience. It would just be so great to go to Mars, I think. And, you know, and part of that I, I acknowledge is just sort of the romance of it and isn't really being uh, scientific about it. But I mean, that would be a huge deal for humans to actually be on another planet, not just on the moon, but to, to take that, that big step to a, a whole, whole other world. That, that would be great. I, I hope it happens in my lifetime. Well, I, I, I hope to be alive for a long time to come, and I think it's within the realm of our lifetimes that we might see people to Mars. And I think it's going to be a commercial venture, actually. Um, yeah. I just don't see uh, the scientific value of Mars, which is, which is uh, certainly uh, a very good argument for going there. I just don't see that being compelling enough to spend hundreds of billions of dollars to put government astronauts on Mars. Yeah. But there's the entertainment, there's the excitement value, there's the, there's the um, entrepreneurial value of being the first to do something uh, and then using that as a marketing tool. I really think think you'll see some billionaire put together a consortium of sending people to Mars, maybe just in orbit first or around it, just yeah. as um, what Dennis Tito announced this past month. Exactly. I don't think he's got a practical plan, but somebody no. will eventually. And so the, um, the excitement of Mars from our culture, from our science fiction, uh, from our movies, that's going to drive some private venture to get there, I think, before governments will. Yeah. Well, in fact, why don't you bring in uh, that... Uh... Second question from our uh, friends okay. on Facebook. <clears throat> this is from Kirsten Heffron. Where do we go from here? Will humans return to space other than the ISS in our lifetimes? Are we dependent on people like Elon Musk to get us there? That uh, question goes to right to, to what you were talking about. I think um, we will, you know, it seems like a long time that, that we've had this stand down since the shuttle retired only a year and a half ago. Uh, but we've moved obviously into a sphere where we're flying in space much more infrequently, only five or six Americans go to the space station every year uh, compared to 40 or 50 astronauts flying when I was flying on the shuttle every year. Mm -hmm. So it does seem like a big slowdown and a, dis a disappointment. So we're going to see the commercial companies take over shipping 
astronauts to the space station instead of the Russians on Soyuz. That'll happen by 2016. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain of that. But it won't mean a, an increase in flights, except that the tourist element will begin to take over. You know, now people pay $30 million to the Russians to go on a tourist flight to the space station. But as soon as this, com this commercial transport business is operable for NASA, that same company can then build extra spaceships to just go on tourist jaunts and sell seats for 20 million or 15 or 10 million as the market gets more competitive, that price will drop. You'll see more and more people buying those seats and perhaps going to a private little space hotel. Yeah. So that before 2020 will be a reality for increasing numbers of people. We haven't even talked about the suborbital cannonball type tourist flights that will start up next year or the year after, and you'll see hundreds of people doing that by 2020. Um, they'll get five or 10 minutes of being waitless. That's, yeah. to me, small potatoes, but uh, it's a start. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, um, uh, in parallel with, I hope, NASA doing things out at lunar distance and dealing with asteroid missions and so on, uh, you'll, you'll see tourist flights to the moon. You'll see industrial activity in Earth orbit uh, in addition to tourism. I think all of that will start to take off. So the prospects for you personally being involved in space flight uh, as either a tourist or a worker up there are much greater, I think, than I saw when I was a kid going through high yeah. school uh, in the 1960s and 70s. So, uh, you know, there was only the government route back then. Now you're going to have this parallel and much, much larger commercial activity that you can participate in. Space yeah. plane pilot, adventure tour guide, <laughs> uh, biomedicine maker in, in Earth orbit, that kind of thing. We're going to take another question from one of our friends on Facebook. This is from Steve Ganson. What are the ethical implications and obligations of colonizing space outside our own planet? Is it a worthy or even realistic goal to do so? Well, colonization is a big order, a tall order. Uh, it's going to take... Uh, you know, the knowledge of how to get, use the local resources to make your colony self-sustaining because you can't rely on shipments from Earth. It would be too expensive. So uh, it's going to take some technology development, which and I don't think we're quite there yet. But we certainly know in principle how to build machines that can extract the ingredients for life out of the atmosphere or the water that's beneath the surface on Mars. Even on the moon, there's water ice we know, and you can extract oxygen from the rocks. So it's possible to even think of an outpost on the moon that could be self-sustaining. Yep. Now, how do you raise the capital to start that off? That's the big key. So uh, this, I think the first step towards it is, for example, mining water ice from the moon and selling that water to NASA or to some other space agency so that they can lower the cost of their operations in space. So first a government customer, then private enterprise as a customer. Uh, I think that's an essential way of proceeding. But is it ethical? Um, I don't see any problems with you setting up an outpost on the moon or an asteroid uh, uh, or Mars. We have outposts and on Antarctica where mm -hmm. we agree that we're not going to have industrial activity on that on that uh, continent, but we can still use the resources there, the water, the oxygen, to sustain a scientific outpost. And there's tourism activity on Antarctica now. So, you know, that same kind of model could work on another world. And the fact that there are millions of asteroids puts them in a special category. I think we can spare a few asteroids for an yeah industrial activity and mining while keeping, oh, 999,000 of them available for <laughs> as national parks. Okay? Yeah. So there's no worry about running out of natural space in the asteroid business. Well, and I think also that when you're discussing lifeless rocks, there's not going to be as much question. When you start getting closer to things that could potentially have life, uh, then it gets trickier. You know, like when they Mars talk is, 
Mars, exactly. Yeah. You don't contaminate the place before you find out whether there are living things there. Yeah. The moon's pretty much a dead planet. You're not going to yep. find life there. So um, you can think of large-scale industrial activity on the moon, but there'll have to be some alterations to the existing treaties that uh, will al allow private companies to be licensed by the international community. Right. And maybe you pay royalties to the UN or whoever, but you know you benefit everyone, but you also can make a profit. Similar questions come up with uh, Antarctica or something uh, when they drill down into uh, some of these lakes that are beneath the ice. There's always that concern of of contamination, and it would be very similar to say if we ever try to send a mission to Europa to get below the ice and see what's going on there. Then, then there's that huge concern about uh, bringing something from Earth and, and contaminating that environment. Yeah, I think the Europa is a very challenging uh, environment, even though it's got a lot of promise for biology. You've got to find a place on the surface that's got a very thin layer of ice, perhaps a fissure or something where yeah. water can spurt up occasionally, and maybe you can melt some of that ice on the surface and see if it contains organic material. That would be the first step but you know then you've got to find a way to drill down and send your little submarine in there and, yeah. and really look for life in situ that's going to be a major major technical challenge it's probably even more difficult than sending humans to mars in some ways oh, so yeah. uh, but it's it's a it's a real draw and depending on what we find on mars europa may be the next place that you really do a, a search for life in earnest why don't we bring in this question so this is from john drew as a fan of star trek you must have had certain expectations of what to expect in space did the reality meet the expectations? Oh, certainly. Uh, you know, you're not zipping around at warp speed across the galaxy on a space shuttle trip, but the uh, oh. the visual experience of spaceflight, looking back at the Earth, looking on the night side of the Earth off into the, the star-filled cosmos, that's uh, incomparable. Far more than the, you know, sort of the cheesy special effects in Star Trek were back in the 60s. You know, and it was not disappointing in the slightest. The, uh, the physical sensations of getting to orbit on the space shuttle, re-entry and landing, uh, and then the entire orbital period in, in free fall, being, being able to live in free fall for two weeks or more, um, those were just really fascinating experiences. And, and each day brought some new wonderful view out the window, some new discovery on the Earth, some new facet of living in space that surprised you. So um, not disappointing at all. And even though it's different than the fantastical uh, things that we can do on the big screen or in a science fiction novel, um, it's not disappointing in the slightest. One of my friends, Janice Voss, one of my classmates, uh, she died last year, sadly. But she, is a, she was a huge science fiction fan. And she even took science fiction novels with her into space to read. You know, I would have left them closed up in the drawer and never even opened them because the, the, the reality was far more engaging. But I, I will tell you that I missed the pleasure of reading uh, in orbit. You had to leave all that stuff behind. There wasn't enough space to bring books. Nowadays, you'd have an e-reader or something you could indulge in. But really, I just wanted to look out the window. And so even though I missed reading, it was uh, easily replaced by just stargazing or earthgazing. Let's bring in our last friend question that's an amusing question. Uh, this is from the hosts of Cyborgs, a bionic podcast, and they ask, were you a fan of the $6 million man? Well, I hadn't thought about that show in a while, but yes, I used to watch <laughs> it uh, religiously because it was about a test pilot named Steve Austin, and he was, you know, a, a, he might have been an astronaut. I can't remember yeah. whether he was or not, but, um, you know, he was injured in this crash, and they rebuilt him and all of that. So it had the elements of 
test piloting and aviation, which I really was, was uh, I'm still very engrossed in. And it had this, you know, superhero kind of aspect and, you know, a hero saving the day every week. So it was a, an, a, an interesting series. And uh, I, I rather liked the premise. And there was a book, I think it was called Cyborg or something yep, like that. Yep, it was based on uh, a book. Written by Martin Caden. Yep, uh, who that's the one. Who first did the plot of that. And uh, I thought that was a very good book, too. Martin Caden was one of my favorite authors when I was growing up. Before we run out of time, I want to talk about something less uh, geeky. We first got to know each other when you uh, were the co-author on a World War II history book called Hellhawks about uh, P-47 pilots in Europe. Uh, how did you get involved in that? I was an Air Force Academy cadet learning how to fly so I could become an astronaut someday. And one of my roommates, fellow classmate, later became a, an Air Force colonel eventually, he um, was the son of a World War II flyer who was in this fighter group called the Hellhawks. Now, I'd never heard of the Hellhawks, even though I'd read a lot of history. And I visited his dad uh, in Kansas occasionally while we were in college and, and when I was in pilot training later and just talked to him about, hey, what it was like to fly in World War II. Now, this was in the late 1970s, so my friend's dad would have been probably 50 years old or something like that, 55 at the most. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in fact, that was 30 years in. He was about 50, and he'd been a test pilot after the war as well. So it turned out that this gentleman, Bob Hagen, had a fascinating career in aviation, plus he had been in World War II combat against the Germans in Europe. And so that story of his group, the Hellhawks, was just something I thought I'd file away and then maybe I'd, I'd be able to delve into it later on. So it was about 30 years later when I got the chance to research the story and interview the veterans and work with my co-author Bob Doran putting that story together. And it turned out that when we were writing the book that we found out through our research that nobody had really zeroed in on this area of World War II aviation. And so it was yeah. great to tell a new story and bring these veterans' uh, stories to light. And we were very lucky to do that, privileged. Yeah, it's a great book. I, I, obviously, I'm biased since I worked on it, but uh, it really uh, captures the feel of the aerial combat in that era. And some of the stories are just uh, amazing and, and heartbreaking and heroic. One of the, the great things that I get out of my job is that I get a, to take part in getting these things recorded as the years pass, we have fewer and fewer surviving World War II veterans. Yes. And so getting their stories down on paper and out there for people to read is, is a great thing. Yeah, that window is really closing. A, a sad thing for me at my, at my job is that I have lost a number of people that I've worked with in one way or the other, the veterans. On the positive side, I'm going to the birthday party, the 90th birthday party of a World War II fighter pilot in a couple of Sundays. So he's really in top shape, and uh, it's great to, to know people like that. So yeah. I hope that they're around for a long time. Going back to uh, being in space for real, as opposed mm -hmm. to most of us who are only in space through uh, movies, uh, I was talking with uh, Mario Runco Jr. once. Yeah, sure. Good friend. And he... Uh, was telling a story about being in space, being in the sh in the uh, open bay of the shuttle, and he described how if he kind of leaned forward inside his helmet, the edges of the helmet would kind of get out of his uh, field of view, and he was looking out into space, and so there was literally nothing man-made in his view at all. 
he said it wasn't really scary, but that it was just kind of uncomfortable. There's just this sense of just looking out into nothingness. Did, did you ever have a similar feeling? I probably didn't have the uh, presence of mind to try to eliminate the helmet from my view. <laughs> I was quite content with um, just just quite content with enjoying the view that I did have, and I was mm-hmm. um, just not imaginative enough, like uh, unlike Mario, to to try that experiment. <laughs> I can imagine it would be pretty cool to do that. Uh, so, it, but it wouldn't trouble me at all. I, I think, uh, you know, just getting that view even more widely, uh, that wider view available, that would have been really a, a special memory. And so, I'm, uh, you know, I regret that I never didn't tumble to that idea. I wish you'd shared it. He was out there in, in space before I was. You should have shared that more broadly so that we could all try that. <laughs> but, um, no, I'm, I'm, I think that's a terrific idea. And, uh, I can tell you though, that from my experience spacewalking that, um, you can find yourself out on the end of the space station and just get a terrific view uh, unimpeded by the cabin windows as they usually are close to you mm-hmm. that uh, just will blow you away. I mean, tears came to my eyes on my spacewalks when I got that moment to be able to look out to the horizon and up at space and down at the, down at the earth. You know, you're so humbled by that magnificent yeah. and huge universe around you. Uh, and yet you're also feeling very special that you've been given this gift from God that you can get that perspective as a human being. I get moved just imagining how I would feel to be in space, to to see Earth against that backdrop. It, it would just, yeah, I, 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 I <laughs> it renders me, yeah, re- renders me speechless just imagining it. So for people like yourself and Mario that have uh, had that opportunity, that's just amazing to me. Yeah, there's some videos coming back from the space station now that come close. They're HD. Oh, yeah. um, they're not IMAX, but there are some good HD videos that come back that give you a flavor of the the magical view of the Earth from up yeah. there. Um, so I don't have any photographs from my missions that do justice to that view. I have a couple mm-hmm. of – we have some very nice EVA snapshots that we took outside that capture the Earth in the background, but they're, no, they're not aesthetically as pleasing as the real experience was. Well, I know that uh, you have another uh, appointment coming up here, so we should probably let you go. But it's been a pleasure talking to you folks, and thanks for all the listeners who uh, sent in the questions. And, hey, I hope that they keep uh, this conversation going, and hope perhaps we can do it again. Thanks. Thank you. Lovely to have you on the show. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next month for Episode 9, Sinbad and the Eye of the Geek. We'll be reviewing all three classic Ray Harryhausen Sinbad movies because stop motion rules. Please submit your own comments about Ray Harryhausen's Sinbad movies on our Facebook page or email us at thegeeks at generationsgeek.com and we'll respond during the show. Remember that Generations Geek is part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from the Valley of the Cyclops. Please give their other fine podcasts to listen at chronicrift.com. And please follow Generations Geek on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and check out our website at generationsgeek.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny.